talk a lot about the like aggressive alpha male toxic masculinity stuff, but we don't often talk about the other side of it where men are not tapping into who they are and their sense of power and they feel like, yeah, oh, like I can't do anything or, you know, I get told, you know, don't be that, don't be that, don't be that, but they don't get told what they can be. everyone. Happy New Year. This is our first episode of the year and I'm excited about the topic, which is around education and teaching healthy masculinity. I'm very interested in this topic. And if you or anyone that you know knows about more programs like the one covered in this episode, I'm all ears. I want to hear about it. I actually have an idea myself for a course, a college course called Sex, Relationships, Trauma, and Resilience. And I'm interested in teaching at some point. So if anyone knows about any opportunities at the collegiate level also get in touch with me. I would really like to hear about this. So yeah, keep your ears out and your eyes open and see what comes to you and enjoy this episode. You can always get me at dearmenpodcast at gmail.com, by the way. And if you do want to join our community, you can go to Patreon and join. And if you join at a $10 a month level or more, you get access to our live monthly Q&As with me. So if you've been looking for something that's... um another way to participate. That's another good way. And if you are interested in our coaching, you can go to evolutionary.men slash apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I am very pleased to have Scott Kaltenbaugh with me. He is the co-founder of the Inspiring Men Project and a healthy masculinity educator, which we need many thousands of you. So we're very happy to have you on. Very excited about this conversation. Oh, thanks so much. So yeah, um, healthy masculinity educator. I'm so curious about your journey and how you kind of got to where you are. So I think before we start with the work that you do in schools and working with young young people, um, yeah. I would love to hear just a little bit about your own kind of growing up journey, uh, specifically around who were your role models for masculinity and what did you learn from them? I know that's a big question, so you can take it in whatever direction you want, but who were your role models and what did you learn from them specifically about manhood, becoming a man, the masculine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when I was young, I grew up with a very good father figure. My dad, you know, continues to be a great presence in my life and taught me a lot about, you know, a kind of calm but assured form of masculinity and acted as a great example for that. And then I also had the bonus of being surrounded by a family of, you know, powerful, smart, and, you know, women who were great examples of, you know, being a balance to masculinity. And so I was really lucky in that my childhood grew up with good examples on all accounts. Um, and that was a nice inspiration. Um, and that kind of led me on my journey through, at first, just like being a good person and being a good friend to people around me and being that supportive role. Um, it definitely kind of had me 
tap into my caretaker side of things. Um, I was often the one in my friend group to, you know, be the shoulder that people went to cry on when, you know, they were struggling with whatever they were going through as high schoolers often do. And then as we went into college, college is more what set me on the healthy masculinity path in a way, because I, there were a couple of interesting incidents in that, like I took a feminist philosophy class, which was fascinating and I had a really good friend, a really close friend, who's a close friend to this day. And she was very influential in like basically helping me understand what women in our society are going through. And so those things combined really basically at that point, like I figured out that I was a feminist and was like, great, this cool. I'm on it. I'm on board. I like this. But then I got stuck because I really didn't know what to do with that at that point, apart from just be a good guy. Cause I had this understanding. I had this notion that like, okay, as a man in the world of feminism, like I, I can't be one of the leaders, or at least that's the idea I had in my head at the time. Like this movement needs to be led by women and like all that. So honestly, apart from just trying to be a good guy, I sat on that for a while, like years sat on that idea. And Went through a lot of the stuff that I think a lot of men are going through these days. I slipped into nice guy um, syndrome a lot, which I know you talk about on your podcast pretty regularly, and it's absolutely a thing. And just continued on that and you know tried to be a good person, but felt a little stuck in that. And in some ways, I actually kind of moved away from healthy masculinity and was starting to kind of not really have us. I was seeing, starting to see so many examples of like toxic masculinity out there and what I didn't want to be that I was like started to devalue my own masculinity. And then as I kept on and kept on, you know, just kind of being in that space. And eventually I was working as an after school program director at a high school. I was like, okay, this is my job. I'm, you know, working to bring fun workshops to the students who are at this school. Great. And one of the programs that had been recommended to me to bring on board was this basically healthy feminine femininity program for young girls that was in Columbus, Ohio. Sounded like a great, great program. I talked to the founder. She was great. Brought it on. This was wonderful. So I was like, oh, this is great. This is perfect. Now I just need to find the same thing for the young men in my program crickets. There was nothing out there, right? And this is in Columbus, Ohio, a decently big city. It's not we're talking small town America or anything. You know, the best I could find was there would be maybe some mentoring programs where the men could like, or really the boys could go to uh, a church often or like a community center and get together with some men like that. And I was like, no, I, I want you to come to my boys. Like, I want you to come to meet, meet my boys where they're at, which is one of the great things that the women's program did. And so since I couldn't find anything, I was like, well, I guess I need to start one then. And not really knowing what I was doing or getting into, I met with a couple of the other male staff members there and we just came up with this group. We started by calling it guys group until we could figure out a better name for it and then never figured out a better name for it. So it stuck in this guys group for the few years that I ran it there. And we would just meet 
with a group of boys after school and kind of talk about what their experiences as men would be like. We also taught some cool like skills lessons. You know, we taught them both how to change a tire on a car and how to sew buttons on a pair of pants or like skills you'll need across the board. And that was part of the stuff we emphasize is like, look, these aren't gendered traits like society's going to tell you. These are just skills to have. They're just good things you should be knowing. So kept that going. Let me know just real quick. What age group? This was high school boys? This was high school. Cool. Yeah. So they were 13 to 17 or 18, that type of range. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we continued that program. I worked there for, you know, three years after I got that started. And... You know, it was good. We never really had a solid curriculum for it. So I think it was helpful, but it didn't have the oomph that it could have. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm ready for graduate school. I'm going to go on. And so I moved to Vermont, started graduate school here. Went to a graduate school that is pretty progressive and, you know, feels like it should have been this good bastion of, you know, healthy masculinity and good gender equity and relationships. And I still had women coming to me and saying, Scott, like, you need to talk to some of the guys here. Like, they are just not getting it. There's still some, like, real issues with misogyny and things like that here. I'm like, okay, okay. And what was interesting is all of this, like, reinforced kind of what had brought me to healthy masculinity work to begin with, which is, was that in a sense, I came to it for women, right? I saw that these toxic traits of masculinity and these problematic traits of masculinity that were going on cause harm and abuse to women. And like, I wanted to stop that. I wanted to have an effect on keeping that from happening because I had known so many amazing women in my life. Like, that was my approach to it. And so in graduate school, I was like, okay, you know, let's see how this goes. And so I got together a group of folks and we started something called gender brunches, which was we would get together on Sunday mornings as a whole group of people, make brunch together that wasn't the, you know, cafeteria food and talk about gender issues. And it ended up going really well. And we had some great discussions and I think that had a nice positive effect. And through the course of that, that's when I kind of came to a realization that this, like, what I could do, going back to that question I had been kind of stumped with in college of what can I do as a man working towards these feminist goals is like, oh, what I can do is I can work with men, right? And that's how I can do this thing, have this effect that I wanted to in a way that is genuine, in a way that is real, in a way that's, you know, having the most impact, I think. And at that point, that's when I was like, all right, well, let's see what I can do about developing a curriculum to take that idea from guys group years ago, but actually make it a real thing. Take my training from being an educator and being a classroom teacher and the training that I got in graduate school. And I built a healthy masculinity curriculum, turned that into my master's thesis, presented, taught it at a high school in Southern Vermont. They liked it so much that it has since become a uh, four credit, a, a required health class for their 11th grade boys, which is pretty awesome. So, wow, so many great things in there. Um, one thing that really struck me was I am a pretty nerdy person. Yes. <laughs> I've done, 
<laughs> some sociological research. And, you know, I remember years ago, I wrote an article about, um, I had, I experienced some sexual harassment, not at, at work, but I wasn't sure what else to call it. But in, while I was in line at a pharmacy, I was harassed by the person behind me. And I wrote this article about it. And, um, one of the things that I talked about was I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I left the pharmacy. Like, is he going to be waiting for me? Am I under threat? And so I had texted some of my housemates like, hey, can you meet me here so that I don't have to walk home alone, et cetera. And I wrote this whole article about the experience. And I remember this article went went viral. Like, I think it got over a million views. So there were a lot of comments. And I, as a general rule as a writer, I don't read comments. I just don't, I don't read them. I find that the people that are the most invested email me and those are almost always positive things and the comments are just a dumpster fire. And um, I remember some of my friends reaching out and saying, are you okay? Hey, I saw your article. Are you okay? Because of the comments. And someone had just called a few of them and, and I saw a few of them. And one of the interesting things I thought was a lot of the comments had to do with things like, well, you should carry mace. Well, you should um, you should carry pepper spray. You should take a self-defense class. You should know how to defend yourself, essentially. And I thought to myself, there's an interesting trend and reaction, frequent reaction around a vulnerable population, wh- wh- whatever it is, in this case, we're talking about women, but like, hey, women, like you should learn how to defend yourself instead of, hey, we should teach the population with power not to exercise their power in that way, right? We should, and so- so sociologically, I was reading some interesting studies about um, regions of the world where rape was very highly prevalent. And in the research I was looking at, they were looking at South Africa and Nicaragua, which at the time had very high rates in certain regions of those countries. And they were working on the issue and the problem and how do we address this? And TLDR, essentially, the the, the short story is that they instituted programs where men like you taught young men to not rape women. And they had, you know, circle, they, they, they taught them, this is, don't do this. This is why. And it, I'm, you know, making it very short. I'll drop some more information in the show notes. But that has always stayed with me of exactly what you're saying, which is um, there's such power in in men teaching young men how to be a man instead of teaching women how to defend themselves. Because you can teach some women how to defend themselves, but if you have a man who's going around committing harm, causing harm, he's going to keep doing that. So right. maybe you've protected one woman, but you haven't really stopped the issue. It's sort of like dealing with the symptoms of a virus without going after the root cause of the virus. You have to get rid of the virus. You can't just treat the symptoms. So I have a lot of respect. I really liked what you said about I really want to do something. Right? Like I want to do something. I want to help, but I don't really know how. And then finding this this version, you know, this outlet. I we had a graduate of our program who's a very close woman in his life was raped um, while he was just after he had graduated from the program, and I directed him to some of these resources as well because all of his rage had nowhere to go. Right? What do I do about this? I don't know what to do about this. And when we feel like we can't have an effect on something, it eats away at us versus there are outlets, there are ways to contribute and help. And I think that there are so many things that are exciting about what you're doing, but one of them is you have found an outlet, right? You have found a way of contributing and of channeling that desire and that um, 
desi- that drive to provide, which I think is one of the, the hallmarks of the healthy masculine to me, is that drive to provide and protect. It's like an innate just you know, it's just really powerful. And when it's applied, well, it's transformative, it is transformative in the world. So thank you for saying all of that. Um, I also, I think it's really interesting. I just wanted to highlight what, what you said about, you know, being raised with healthy masculine role models. And then in a way, um, I don't know if I would say losing it, but, you know, you mentioned nice guy syndrome and kind of drifting into, um, well, I don't want to be that guy, right? Like, well, I don't want to be the toxic masculine. And I guess I just wanted to say out loud, you know, that is a very real thing, especially in North America and the West, I think in general, but particularly North America as someone who's lived around the world. There's something about our culture where there is such a highlight and a focus on don't be like this, don't do this, don't do that, you know? And I'm curious if you cover that in your curriculum, do you talk about the messages that boys and young men are receiving about being a man? Because they feel really difficult in this culture. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. And that is so spot on because we do, I, the boys and young men that I work with and see most, really, it is about their falling on one or the other end of this spectrum, right? We talk a lot about the like aggressive alpha male toxic masculinity stuff, but we don't often talk about the other side of it where men are not tapping into who they are and their sense of power and they feel like, yeah, oh, like I can't do anything or, you know, I get told, you know, don't be that, don't be that, don't be that, but they don't get told what they can be, right? They don't get shown possibilities. It's just don't be these things, right? And especially for young folks who are still really generating their sense of identity, that's tough, right? And you know, there's there's two important ideas here. And like one of the things that I that is big for me is this idea of blame versus responsibility, right? A lot of times in our culture, we talk about blame. Whose fault is it? You did this wrong. Or even just broader, like men did this wrong. Men are like at fault for this. Men are like, you know what? I don't care anymore who's to blame, right? There, There is interesting stuff to do there to understand how we got here. Like it's not a completely useless path, but ultimately what I care about is who's going to take responsibility, right? And that's what. I want men to be doing more. And partly I want that to be the messaging too, because if these younger men are hearing like, oh, men are terrible, men suck, right? Men are the problem. Like all these things, if that's a message that they just keep getting, then that's going to affect their sense of self, right? And there are wonderful things about masculinity. Just like all of, you know, every realm of the gender spectrum, right? There's positives and negatives all over the place. And so much is just about what we do with it. And so we as mentors, we as men who are helping others, right? That is us stepping into responsibility, right? That is us saying like, hey, I may not have, you know, intentionally abused anyone in my life. It's very likely I've unintentionally done it. Um, 
And I, you know, certainly haven't, you know, done a lot of these things that we hear about, but like, that's not the point. The point is I need to step up and take responsibility for helping shape a better future in whatever way I need to do it, right? I do it very directly with this work. But even as you just said, you know, we're talking about like just being a good role model for the men around you, right? Just talking to those other men in your life, talking to the boys in your life, you know, men who are fathers and want to understand how to reach out to their young boys, their sons, right? You know, model it, be there, show them how to take responsibility and step up, show them how to be a good man rather than just don't be a bad man. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. And and one of the things that I think is really powerful and simple is men talking about their own journey. You know, gotta go, I have therapy in an hour. Gotta go, I have men's group tonight. Gotta go, I'm getting my somatic therapy, you know, I'm going to a somatic therapy workshop this weekend and I need to pack. Like be vocal about the growth work that you're doing because people are listening. Young men are listening, you know, older men are listening, people are listening to you. And it's a non-judgmental, <laughs> it's a straightforward and non-judgmental way of saying, I do personal growth work that, you know, I am a safe person that you can talk to about this. And I think that's something that's been really inspiring for me, witnessing our clients go through our program and beyond and graduate is there's such a ripple effect that I witness in their lives of them them growing and becoming more bold and more vocal, right, about it. I'm thinking of one of our men who um, I think really stabilized his family system by doing his own work. And that has absolutely affected his children, but it's also affected the people that he socializes with, right, his, his sphere. And he, you know, he lives in a pretty rural area. There aren't a lot of folks doing personal growth work out loud. It's kind of underground, but he's doing it out loud now. And he's like, yep, this is what I do. And he's had people say like, you've inspired me. You know, you have inspired me. You are why I have fill in the blank. And that I find deeply inspiring of, yeah, just the ripple effect. And I think about that of, you know, enough ripples creates a wave type of thing. And you never really know who you're going to impact. I think that's one of the most, one of the most fascinating things about someone like you who who is educating young people is you have no idea where those young people are going to go. I mean, some of your boys are going to become men who lead in this area and they're going to bring it into college and they're going to bring it beyond. And it's going to be, there's such an outsized impact when you're working with young people because their trajectory is still forming. You know, like you said, their identity is still forming and that's, there's something really, really exciting about that. So The other thing I wanted to go back to that I thought was really important about what you said was we do talk a lot about, you know, if you look at, we talk a lot about um, the toxic masculine side of this equation. And that makes sense because there is a lot of harm there that is, that is generated. And, you know, the other side of the spectrum, like you said, of passivity, passivity, helplessness, learned helplessness or otherwise, um, I would love for you to just Tell us a little bit more about how that's showing up and how you work with that energy in your in your boys. Um, and if you could just remind us the ages of the boys that you work with, I think it helps ground the conversation. But what are you noticing about that side of things, like the passivity, um, kind of like where does it come from? But how do you work with it? How are you addressing that kind of pattern with boys? And would you say that more, most slash more of the boys are showing up with that? Or, or, you know, if you were to percentage wise, it's like 70, 30 on the passive range or what, what's happening? 
Yeah. So the H grade we work at, we're pretty much open to, we mostly work in the, sorry, we mostly work in the public school system right now. So we're elementary through high school. We're available to work with more, of course, but that tends to be the bulk of the, the young men we work with. And it's tending these days to be more around like fifth grade through eighth, ninth grade. So that like, you know, nine, 10 to 14, 15 stretch. Um, but we've also had mentees as young as kindergarten and, you know, there's stuff you can do there. You just have to, you know, scaffold it appropriately and see how you can shift things. Um, in terms of how we work with, or what the percentage breakdown of that is, you know, I think it's, it's a little bit school dependent. Um, and partly that's because, so in the high school where I teach the healthy masculinity curriculum, where I have a classroom of young men and it's, you know, it's just their entire, you know, 11th grade class of boys. Right. I think in that case, it tends to fall more on the passive side of things, you know? Um, and I don't know if that's just because that's the kind of, boys that that school is attracting or, you know, how that's sitting. But my impression is, is that taken as a whole, the bulk of young men are probably more on that passive side. In terms of the mentoring, we have a little bit of a selection bias there, I think, because the schools are choosing the young boys that we mentor. Um, we basically just say, hey, we are available. What do you need? And then between, usually it's the classroom teachers and the guidance counselor, sometimes with the principal involved as well, they will pick, you know, a number of boys to come and meet with us. And I think also, you know, going back to that idea of like, we talk about the toxic side more than the passive side, they're pulling out more of those like aggressive, toxic young men to work with us. And some of the passive ones are being ignored or being forgotten about. We do get some of those occasionally. Um, but. Yeah, it really is more of that balance in terms of that that one-on-one mentoring that we do. So but I'm curious, how do you address, you know, I talk a lot about the heart cock matrix. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that that's not the language that you use. Yeah, not so much. Do you have do you sort of ex- is it part of the curriculum that you explain, hey, there are different archetypes or there are different ways that this shows up and there's usually, you know, how do you explain it to to boys and do you see light bulbs going off like what happens with them when they're learning about this? Yeah, I I talk a lot about power for myself. Um, and, and when I am working with these young men, both in the classroom setting and the one-on-one, because what I see a lot is I talk to them about three stages of power. Um, there's power over, which is that you know standard hierarchy that is the common idea of power that most of them understand. And that's what a lot of masculinity is taught to be like, the higher up the power hierarchy you are, the more masculine you are, the better you are. Like that's your job as a man is rise up that ladder. Um, we talk some about power with this is teamwork. This is working together. This is the power of the collective, right? And that's great. That's important. But then there's also power within. And that's that sense of self. That's that thing of like, I can't control what the world does to me. I can't control what the world sends my way, but I can control how I meet that, right? I can control what I do in response, how I, you know, take it into my sense of self, even, and this is where we can start talking about emotions and, you know, emotions, 
emotions are tools, right? They're important. We need to have them, right? We need to honor them and respect them, but we don't need to let them be our decision makers, right? They give us useful information. And so for a lot of the men on the more aggressive, toxic alpha male side, it's helping them understand that that power over is not the only way to have power, right? It's not necessarily the healthiest way to have power, right? Have it through your teamwork, have it through your relationships, and then have it within yourself. And because, you know, that power over people can always be taken away. There's always going to be someone over you. So, but that sense of self within, that's there, right? Once you've got that, sure, you know, the tides of ourselves, we are human that can ebb and flow sometimes, but like that's still always going to be there as a resource we can draw on and our way, a way to meet the world. And then for the more passive boys and young men, it really is teaching them about how their self has value and finding that power within themselves. And in some ways, like giving them permission to have power, because that's part of it too, is, you know, we're taught that like, uh, you know, powerful men are these aggressive men and therefore bad. And like, so we associate all those things. Like, no, power is our ability to meet and shape the world around us. And that is a thing that we all should be allowed to do. And so we don't need to demonize power. We just under, need to understand how it's best used and how to use it compassionately. And that's where then bringing in the emotion and the connection and, you know, in your terms, the heart cock matrix. And so I talk about compassionate power a lot. You know, how can you have that sense of power, have that sense of energy and meeting the world with some firmness, but that is loving and full of connection to the people around you and full of love and connection to yourself too. Cause a lot of them just don't love themselves a lot. They don't have that self-compassion. Yeah. I mean, that's really the foundation of everything. You know, there was someone said something once, some very wise elder figure in the healing world. She said, almost all mental illness is about self-esteem in the end. And I thought that was a poignant way of say of self-esteem as a form of self-love to me, right? And yeah. what you're pointing to is really at the heart and the core of a lot of issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I love that term compassionate power or power with compassion. And I'm curious, you know, so it sounds like essentially there are two tracks of what you do. You do the classroom curriculum, which is what you're sharing is a lot of those boys are showing up with on the passive side, maybe 70, 30, something like that. And then there's the mentorship component, which is handpicked boys that the school administrators and others have said, these boys need some mentorship. They need a healthy masculine role model in their lives, helping them. They probably don't have it at home, I'm guessing. you know. So we want you to put some attention on on them. And that might be 70, 30 the other way or, yeah. or more, you know, 90, 10. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about, you know, the trajectory, like how, how I would imagine a lot of these boys are actually quite open to learning. My experience, I've only worked with middle school populations a little bit, but they, they tend to put up a tough act, but in my experience, they are, they are listening. They are listening. They want to learn. They are receptive. Um, what, what has your experience been with, if you can speak a little bit to both of those populations, do you see the sort of more passive boys learning to step into their power, becoming more assertive? You know, what is the learning trajectory that you're seeing in both of those populations? 
Yeah, I think with the mentorship part of it, a lot of that is important in how we approach it. And that's when it becomes very much about understanding the boy that's in front of you, the young man that's in front of you, and what they are looking at. You know, one of my first mentoring experiences, the young man that I was going to be working with, I kid you not, was in his guidance counselor's office crying for half an hour before meeting with me because he didn't want to talk about his feelings. Like, and like the irony of being in tears that he didn't want to talk about his feelings. I mean, there's just something that we need to understand about that. And like, yes, yes, yes. Okay. And so with him, it was more about, you know, how are we modeling? How are we doing things together? Because if, you know, even after working with him for a couple of years, if I would say anything that sounded like, well, how are you feeling about that? That would shut him down, right? But I could talk about my feelings, right? I might share how my day went and how I felt about things, and he would be open to hearing that. We also just did a lot of experiences together. Um, and this is one of the key things, again, with the mentoring and the one-on-ones, is I, I heard a quote a long time ago, and I, I don't have a source for it anywhere, but the quote was, men bond shoulder-to-shoulder, women bond face-to-face. And what I've taken from that is scrap all the gender language and scrap the absolutism of it and more think about sometimes it's important to bond shoulder to shoulder and sometimes it's important to bond face to face. And that shoulder to shoulder component is like, let's work on something together. Sometimes it's just playing a game. I have played so many games of basketball and shot so many hoops, but I am a terrible basketball player. The boys always do better than me. It's fine. That's not the point, right? In fact, it gives them a nice little sense of power for themselves that they are a better basketball player than I am. Cool. Great. Um, but it, you know, when we're not for, for those boys and the people who are in that mindset, like not having to look me in the eye and tell me how they're feeling if they can look at the basketball, if they can look at the hoop, if they can, you know, throw a Frisbee around and then we'll chat about it. They can tell me how they're feeling that way. They can tell me about their experiences and the challenges that they're going through. In that sense, it becomes easier for them. There are other boys that I've worked with who wanted that more face-to-face approach, right? I started be like, hey, do you want to play a game? Like, oh, let's just sit and chat. And we would sit and have some very powerful conversations because that's where they were at. And so finding how to meet each young man where they are at. And that's so important and understanding the different approaches. And then in the classroom settings, I'm big on discussions, right? We still do activities. We'll do, you know, things that spark the conversation, but then it becomes the discussion. I believe that a lot of these men and boys, they have a lot of the answers within them, right? They are experts in their own experience far more than I am. So letting them talk about their experiences, letting them share about what they and their peers are going through on a regular basis. You know, I might give a prompt such as like, what are the, you know, things that tell you how to be a man? And they'll spit out some things here and there. And what I can offer then is help them analyze a little bit like, well, okay, why is this a positive thing? Why is this a negative thing? Like, how is this affecting your life? And by having them talk together with me as a facilitator more than a lecturer, 
that's what it can help bring them out and help them find that sense of self because they're also seeing themselves be experts in that field and seeing themselves offer good advice and seeing their peers do it. Let's talk about vulnerability. I'm curious about, um, you know, one of the, I think, most valuable things that I witness in the growth work of our clients is is the power of the group. And I have witnessed on multiple occasions, you know, on one of our calls, a man sharing his experience of something, let's say it's porn addiction or um, feeling trapped in a relationship, like really feeling like, I don't know, I don't know what to do about this. And I see other men nodding along. And there's a, there's such power in one person sharing and other people witnessing them. And I'm curious, you know, the most powerful shares tend to be the ones where someone is vulnerable and they're really telling, they're speaking their truth. How, how, you know, how do you find, are, are boys feeling safe to do that in your groups? Does it take a while? Do you find, how does vulnerability work in terms of them sharing? Cause you're essentially modeling it up at the head of the classroom. I'm particularly thinking about the classroom, but, and just to clarify, when you're talking about mentorship, it's more one-on-one. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Nodding. Okay. So the mentorship component is, is either one-on-one or small groups. Right. Okay. And then the classroom is larger groups. I'm, I'm sort of curious about both of those of how does vulnerability work? How do you make it safe for men, young men and boys to be vulnerable with one another? One of the big keys, of course, is to model vulnerability yourself. You know, obviously, you know, there's, there's the power differential and things like that. And so I don't share detailed details about my life, but I talk about when I am felt sad and when I'm feeling hurt and when I am, you know, having, I will share some of those more tender moments with them. And by seeing me do it, then some of the boys who are a little already a little bit more open and ready to, you know, share that kind of stuff, then they'll share something. And then, you know, that helps some of the other boys break out. And of course, you know, over the course of a, you know, 10 week, uh, healthy masculinity class, not all of them will open up and that's fine too. Right. Hopefully just by seeing it in others that encourages them to do it in even safer spaces. The other part too, is I, this is where, despite being a big believer in equity and, you know, having men and women and people of all genders have these experiences together This is where I think single gender groups can be very important. And that's why a lot of the work that I do is just with male identifying folks. Um, I'm a big believer in men's circles and, you know, for adults, men's wisdom circles, men's circles, however people want to call it. I participate in those. Just a group of men getting around. A lot of times we just stand out in the woods around a fire and we share and we talk and we lean on each other. But a lot of times, and this is, of course, especially true for, you know, men who are attracted to women, is when you're in a mixed gender group, there's sometimes even more of a reluctance to share in front of women because you don't want them to see your weakness because we're, again, back to all those things about, like, we're taught that being manly is, A, attractive to the people that we want to attract, and B, about not showing emotions besides, you know, maybe anger or aggression. Um, And so it just allows a lot more men to be vulnerable and open when it 
is a group of men and you start to model that this is about safety and sharing is acceptable here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting because, you know, in our program, we have both, you know, call, I think one of the unique things about our program is that men have access to me and Jason. So we yeah. have both both sexes represented there as mentors. But we, in addition to the calls we do with me, there are also men's groups in our program where I am not present. And I really believe that there is something important about that. And I love that you, you know, you mentioned male identifying people because you're working with Generation Z, you're working with Gen Z. And I would imagine that there are at least some trans boys trans men in your groups and or non-binary folks that want to opt into these spaces. And this is, this is a matter of inclusion, right? This is like, if you identify this way, you are welcome in this space. And we're going to talk about these things. It's not exclusive. It's inclusive, or it can be, I think I would imagine the way you're running it is inclusive. Sometimes it it can be exclusive, but in this case, it's inclusive. And it is a set of folks that are having a similar a similar experience in the world and let's talk about that similarity and you know in the same way i think there's a unique quality to spaces for people who identify as women where we're able to share in a different way than when it's a co-gendered space and that's because partly because of trauma right we're all coming with different kinds of trauma and i think that that's an interesting you know, segue into how do you talk about trauma with boys? Because you have to be developmentally appropriate, right? You're an educator and you're teaching pretty different populations. You're talking about elementary school is going to be a very different curriculum from 11th grade. 11th grade is you're just in a different place in your world, you know? So how how do you talk about trauma? Do you talk about trauma? How do you talk about trauma? What do you teach them about that? Yeah. So at the high school level, at, at 11th grade, we just pretty much straight up get into it. Um, I Two whole days of my curriculum is about consent. And actually, even outside of this, I teach consent workshops as a whole thing that's just about that. And in that, you know, I share experiences from my life and my past partner's um, who I've had permission to share these their experiences with. But like I talk about, you know, female-bodied people, women who have experienced trauma, what that means in terms of how they relate to potentially future partners. Um, the big message that kind of reoccurs with all that is other is like your partner's trauma, the people that you care about trauma is not about you, right? Because so often when we encounter a trauma response, we get defensive about it. Like, I have a reaction from a partner after something that I may be trying to do that's coming from a place of love and compassion, but it sparks a trauma response. And it can be very easy to get defensive about that. And like, hey, what are you doing? I was just trying to be nice. And so when I can help men understand that take that breath understand that that reaction is not about you that you can pause and say hey i'm noticing something big here do you want to talk about it let's just pause and step back right when you're ready we can sit and talk about it let me know what you need from me right now right and so being able to enter that space and the 11th graders can get it the t- you know the high schoolers can get it 
right? They, they unfortunately see this stuff around them. I wish they didn't, right? You know, I'd love for their innocence to, to extend that long, but like they see stuff around them. Um, for the younger folks, a lot of it is, is about empathy and just being able to see the world from other people's point of view. Um, awareness is actually always one of the first things I talk about with both mentees and with the classroom curriculum, because, you know, as, as men, we come from this privileged place in our society, right? Again, not blame, just responsibility. We have privilege. We got to deal with it. But very commonly with that privilege just comes a lack of awareness, right? We assume that our experience of the world is the default experience of the world, right? And so what we go through, everybody goes through. And so for me, like, I'm not a tall man, but like, I'm burly. I've got a big bushy beard. Like, I can walk down the street most places and not feel scared at all, right? I have not had a physical assault against me in my life. Like that's not a trauma that I have. It's not an experience I've had, but I need to understand that that is not what everybody goes through. And so, although I don't have to use words like trauma and assault and stuff like that with a fifth grader, I can help them see that like, Hey, you know, do you know that like the girls in your class are going through something different than what you're going through? Right. And that maybe some of the other boys in your class, you know, don't have the same view on things that you do, right? They don't have the same experiences that you do. And when they can start to have that awareness, because that that first step just has to be kind of like looking up from their own life. And yeah, at elementary school, that's hard, right? Like developmentally, that's they're they're caught up in their own world. That's that's fine, right? So we start to get them to look up and you know, not to be a Luddite or anything, but in this age of so much time spent on screens, we are losing our ability to read other people and have a sense of what other people, because so much interaction goes on through a screen, right? These kids are playing these online games where they have interactions with a lot of other people, but it's all filtered, right? It's all of a context that can't read people. And so now it comes into the classroom and they can't read people there. They don't have an awareness. They're stuck in their life. They're stuck on their technology. They're stuck on their, you know, sense of self. And they don't see that world around them. So first step, get them to look up and see the world around them. Next step, you build that empathy and be, oh, what I see isn't what everybody else sees. And it's not that their version is right or your version is right. We're just seeing different things because of our experiences. And I'm curious also, so you know, one in three women, this is a statistic for people over the age of 18, one in three women and one in six boys. So one in three girls and one in six boys um, will experience sexual abuse before the age of 18. That is a shitload of people. It is millions and millions of people. So trauma, and I'm specifically thinking of sexual trauma. There's other other trauma too. I mean, you, you, when you're teaching in a classroom, there are kids in that classroom experiencing domestic violence. There are kids in that classroom experiencing sexual abuse. There are kids in that classroom currently right now in their home having these experiences. How do you address, I mean, what are you quote allowed to talk about and how do you address also trauma that the boys have experienced or are experiencing, not just the response that they're going to get from partners, because that's also going to inform 
their whole world. Like, how do you, that seems, that seems challenging and critically important. Yes, absolutely. And just as a brief aside, before I really directly answer that question, this speaks to how my thinking about this work that I do has shifted over time. When I got started into this work, as I said earlier, like I was going to help men be better men so that women would be safer. As I've done more of this work, it's become all about the boys and the men themselves. Like I, as I started doing more and more of this work, I really started to see how much harm our young men are experiencing at all ages. And whether it's direct physical or sexual trauma, emotional abuse, those kinds of things, or whether it's just the harm of the society that we're living in and these views of masculinity that we're putting on young men, like that is why I do it now. Right. And yes, bonus, it has an effect on people of other gender out in the world. And that's great. In terms of dealing with it in the mentorship or in the classroom, it is always one of the biggest challenges. Um, And in the classroom stuff, part of that gets into, I think a big part is when we do talk about consent. And I always emphasize that everybody gets consent. Because a lot of times consent is framed in this, you know, consent for male-bodied people wanting to have relationships with female-bodied people or male-identifying folks with female-identifying folks. And like, that is always the dynamic that it's presented as. And I tell everybody, I'm like, you get consent too, right? As men, you get to say no, right? And you get to set your boundaries. We talk about healthy boundary setting. And part of it is acknowledging that like, you know, as youth, there are sometimes limits to the boundaries that you can set, but you have to try and set them as much as you can. And that like, you are allowed to have them. You deserve to have them. You need to have them, right? And so hopefully that helps, even if they are not sharing with me or sharing with the group that they're going through any kind of trauma or abuse in their own lives. Hopefully that sets up some of the dynamics for them to set some of those boundaries in their life or understand that the minute they get out of an abusive situation, then they can start to do things differently. And it doesn't have to set that pattern of, I experienced this when I was young, therefore that is how people should be allowed to treat me in the future, right? With the mentoring, it's, again, I think it comes back to just case-by-case basis. Sometimes you have a strong sense that it's there, but they're not admitting to it, they're not talking about it, or sometimes the school will tell us that something is there, but, you know, but the young man won't open up to us. Um, Usually what we try and do with the mentoring is we try and come into at least the first mentoring session, not knowing anything about the young man that we're mentoring. We want like, let's have a clean slate. Let me just get to know you have one or two sessions like that. Um, My co-founder is very good. He, he loves to ask the question. So why do you think you're meeting with me? I'm like, I love that. Yes, yes, all the time. That's the best question. Um, 
but then later, sometimes the school will tell us, okay, this is what we're looking, you know, this is what some of the things that are going on in the student's experience here at school, right? And so a lot of it does come back to that idea, again, of power and power within. And it's like, okay, you are in a crappy situation. You can't always control how that is happening to you, right? But as you start to develop a sense of yourself and a sense of your worthiness, a sense of your value, and therefore a sense of the power that you have to meet the world, that's what can hopefully help you get through these times. And then as you get out, hopefully of that abusive situation, then into, you know, being in a better place to support yourself and be feel powerful and be a whole and complete human being outside of that. Um, we of course follow like a uh, mandatory reporter rule. So, you know, if, if a student tells us about any of that stuff, like we do report it then to the schools and, and send it on up the chain, but it's rarely that direct. That has also been my experience with, with young people is it's, it's rarely direct, but yeah you're aware that there's something and i would guess that in 100% of the mentoring cases this is just my guess there's something going on at home yeah. and that's why the behaviors are showing up at school it's like a equals b so it's yeah it's really it's sensitive and it's challenging and i'm um relieved and heartened to know that you know people like you exist and programs like this exist because i really do believe that that something is always better than nothing. And just some exposure to any of this, even if it's just, there are men in the world that care and that are able to listen to you and help guide you. And, you know, I would imagine that there's some talk about, you know, therapy or, you know, support that is available that boys or young men might remember later on. Like I remember him talking about, you know, trauma release experiencing or whatever modalities you cover in your yeah. program, maybe it's time that I do that, right? That the, at least the seed has been planted so that it's not just, I'm out here struggling and I have no context for anything and no one has ever talked to me about this before. At least there's some structure around it. Um, but I think that's, yeah, that's one of the challenging things. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a therapist and it's like doing therapy with people who are still in an abusive situation is very, very different than someone who's not, you know, it's, there, there's, it's a, it's a really hard place to be, right? It's like, yeah. if you're going home and you don't feel safe in your home where you sleep, there's only so much you can, that can be done about that. Right. It's like, we got to get them out of the home. Like they got to get out of the home, not just young people, but just if you're in that situation, right. It's a different experience versus being, being on the other side of it. Um, and there was an interesting program, you know, I was talking about the the programs that I mentioned in Nicaragua and South Africa. There was another one that I believe was instituted in Kenya or Tanzania, I'm forgetting, somewhere um, in that region where they called it, this is your moment. And um, I believe this program was actually scaled to other, other places, including New York City. But it was a, tar a program targeted at boys and young men and, and adults, like men, young men and men. And it was about interrupting something that you see that's not okay. So it wasn't about 
the person, like the man himself, let's say it's like a sexual assault scenario. It was about if you hear something strange, go over there. You know, if you hear something or you see something, it's like get involved um, to sort of surpass the bystander syndrome, right? Which is very well documented in psychology of people just sort of standing by while bad things happen. And so that was the name of the program was this is your moment. This is your moment. And they and they had multiple success stories of just, you know, it's not just about addressing that, let's say, the the toxic man who is causing harm. But if we can get the other folks around him to interrupt that, we're gonna see less harm. And they did. They they were tracking these rates. Like I said, these was these were sociological studies that were done and it, it worked. It was effective. So I think it's very encouraging also to just have people, like you said, be more aware and attuned so that even if it's not them, but it's like, hey, if your friend is having a hard time, you know, know about these modalities, have something that you can suggest, or it's 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 planting those seeds that I think can grow. It's like when you need this resource, you know, this is a potential resource of one of the things that I've often said is, um, and I'm curious if you've experienced this, but many of the men that I've worked with have been the person that their high school girlfriend disclosed to. So their high school girlfriend or college girlfriend was sexually assaulted and they were the one that she told. And very frequently she said, but don't tell anyone. So I'm telling you and, you know, I trust you and like, but don't say anything. And that, and the, um, there's so much burden there, right? There's, she's carrying a burden and she's, sharing the burden with him, but then, but if he doesn't know what to do with it, that can be really hard. And, you know, that's part of what I, I talk about is, you know, we want you to have support too. Like you need to be able to process this with someone. Cause that's a really difficult thing to hold, especially if you're young and you don't know what to do about it and the secrecy involved and all of that. So I'm curious if you address any of that of like, we're doing all this with you. And also this might show up in the people that you care about in the future. Like, how does that how does that work? Do you do that sort of at the end of the curriculum or? Well, I mean, so yeah, I, I love the program that you're talking about and the, this is your moment and, and I want to look into that more and that's great. Um, in terms of, you know, being the person that a partner opens up to and shares with, I think where we kind of tie into that um, is in that consent section and in that part where we do one of the things that I often say to the men that I work with is like, this isn't necessarily because I think you, the person sitting in front of me are going to go off and have a consent violation. Right. I don't think you are going to go off and deliberately break someone the boundaries. Right. You can share this with the men around you. You can be aware and, you know, be that person who, as you said, just like, be present, just step in and, you know, just say something, right? This is, again, where the men's wisdom circles come in and, you know, a man can bring up in one of those circles, you know, a way that he might be relating to a partner or a friend or something like that. Or likewise, if someone has come to him with some heavy information, right, then the men in that circle can help him to share that emotional burden um because so often and and this does this this cuts in a lot of ways right you know so often men are taught to either like not have an emotional burden right you just don't feel your emotions you just tuck them away whatever or for our romantic partner to be our only person that we can share our emotional and that's a lot of weight 
to put on a partner. And especially when it comes up to those things that have to do with that partner, right? And so being able to share those burdens and share that like emotional weight with our brothers, with the men around us, with the men that we trust. And of course, you know, finding that balance of what is appropriate to share and right and respecting people's privacy. And the the phrase I always use in all of the stuff I do is like privacy, not secrecy. So, right, like we should talk about the stuff that we're talking about, right? These ideas should be out there, but keep the private stuff private. And so by sharing all of the, you can share the emotional weight of what you're going through without sharing details. And that is hopefully what I try and help men understand and and boys as well, because like I teach them about friendships and brotherhood and that sense of like being able to have a connection with each other. Cause something that I know, you know, in all your work, but we haven't addressed as much today is like the loneliness of adult men, men are so lonely these days. Right. And it just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And so by helping them learn not only how to form connections with other people, but the importance of it. Um, and this is actually kind of challenging when working in the schools because it's actually pretty easy to have friends when you're in school, right? Even if you're more of the loner type, like you are surrounded by peers, you are forced to interact with them every day, right? But it's once we get out past college that those connections become much harder to maintain. And we as men, we're not doing it well. And so we need these tools. We need this encouragement. We need to understand how important it is that we do that. And so those are some of the ways that we can help men find that support when yeah. they get those weeks. Absolutely. And just bring, just bringing it up, right? Just, just yeah. naming it, right? That we are living through a loneliness epidemic, it, I would say, in the West in particular. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but Dr. Ruth was just recently appointed our nation's loneliness ambassador because the health outcomes related to loneliness are a public health crisis. And I think just having, yeah, just having boys be aware of that, particularly as we are moving into more and more gig economy jobs. So more and more jobs that are isolating, such as being an Uber driver or um, Postmates delivery, that kind of thing, where you have limited interaction with people, you know, you're on your own a lot. And then you add in a lot of, you know, the virtual um, connection, like you were saying, with particularly with Gen Z, where so much of their world is online and that's, and they're growing up that way. So that is how that is normalized for them now as this is how I live or this is, this is normal that it takes something to overcome that, you know. So exactly what you said, it's like, it's not necessarily going to get better. The structures of our world don't support connection and community as much as they used to. And so it takes more effort and it's worth the effort and it's worth letting boys know, you know, this is something that you need to put your attention on is social connection, community, social connection, community, right? Finding groups, finding things where you're going to see people on a regular basis, all of that, just naming it. I think there's something valuable about that so that it's in their field of awareness. And years later, they can remember that that's right. This is, this is a real thing. And we tend to think of health as, you know, don't smoke cigarettes, eat well and exercise, but social connection is equally, if not more important than all of those things. It's like eat well, exercise, friendship, <laughs> community, like connection, social connection is necessary for health. Um, 
really quick, a one, another thing I wanted to mention was, you know, one of the things that I used to talk about a lot was access to an organization called RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, with which you're probably familiar because um, they have anonymous online chat. So sometimes if you have been, you know, if you're in a situation where someone has told you something and you don't feel like you can tell anyone in your world, you can talk to people on on RAIN because it's anonymous and confidential and at least get the conversation going, at least be able to share with someone, particularly who's trained on sexual assault. That is that is what they do. It's the Rape and Incest National Network. But, but just to talk to someone because the bottling it up and not being able to to share it or or process it with anyone else, that's a that's a problem. And I've shared this before, but it's worth saying there is something called secondary post-traumatic stress disorder, secondary PTSD, which is experienced by by people that are first responders, uh, including therapists and those that are hearing stories. That that can happen if you don't have the resources to deal with a story someone's telling you, particularly someone you care about. That can be really, really, really hard. That's that's not just like. A, a minor thing that can be that can be a form of post traumatic stress to not know how to integrate that and what to do with it and what to do about it. Particularly if you have that drive to protect and provide, right? It's like it's an innate drive, and it's and it's when it's thwarted, it's like shit. I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how to provide. That's a really stressful place to sit as a boy or a man. Like I want to do something and I don't know what to do. That's a really hard, that's a really hard thing to to sit with. So I'll drop that in the resource section as well. This will be a really long resource section for this episode. Um, And then I did want to mention one last empathy exercise that I think is really interesting. This is for anyone listening who is in education or or even in adult spaces. But we, we played this, I guess you could call it a game. I'll never forget it in my high school at one point, which was, um, I don't remember what they called it, but essentially everyone got um, sticky notes, like three sticky notes. And the idea was to write down um, three burdens or three, just something that you're contending with. And it was anonymous. I mean, there was there was the handwriting issue, right? Which you could get around with if you did it digitally. But basically everyone wrote down something, things, three things. And then we all stuck them up um, on the back of the whiteboard so that you would go up and you could stick them wherever you wanted. And the idea was for it to be anonymous. And then they flipped the whiteboard around. And so you, you knew someone in this room has a mom with schizophrenia, right? Someone in this room has a brother who just had an overdose and it's not sure that they're going to make it. Someone in this room is going through leukemia and hasn't told anyone, right? Like there were, and those aren't all of the examples. Some of them were like, I'm being bullied every day and I haven't said anything to anyone, right? And so some of them were, it covered the gamut, but it was such an eye-opening exercise for so many of us because, you know, as peers, we're sitting around, we think, well, we're quite involved developmentally. Like you said, we're all very self-involved. <laughs> it's me, it's my world. You know, I'm not popular. Why am I not popular? I'm sad. But then it was very sobering to see, you know, my my dad is an alcoholic and sometimes there's no dinner. Like sometimes I don't know where he is at the end of the day or whatever, right? And to be able to, to understand and grasp this is happening for the people in my life in this room was extraordinary. And I think pretty life-changing for me at the time. Like I, I remember feeling humbled and um, like, wow, I want to I wanna help. Like I want to do something to help. And, um, 
that's just one example of these types of programs like that you run where I still remember that, you know, 30 years later or whatever it was, right? Like I, I will never forget that moment. And I think there's something really sacred about the work that you do. And I would love for you to explain a little bit about where your org is and who you're working with. And if there are people listening to this who are interested in getting you into their school system or people like you, what is the landscape around this, you know, teaching healthy masculinity in schools? Um, yeah. So first of all, I just want to acknowledge what you just talked about with the empathy exercise and how important that is and the the value of being able to view the people around us as whole and complete human beings has this beautiful double effect in that, A, it lets us see other people more completely and with more empathy and with more understanding. But then it also has that reflection on ourselves of like, oh, I'm not alone, right? There are other people who are experiencing similar things to me. And and there's a beauty in both of those feelings that can come as you develop empathy and understanding and those things around you. And uh, yeah, I love that exercise. Um, that's so great. That's so great. Um, in terms of the work that we do, I, so we are in Southern Vermont. I'm out of Brattleboro, Vermont, um, and we work in the school systems surrounding us. Uh, we are a pretty new organization. We're less than a year old, actually, at this point, but we are continuing to expand. We are primarily, like we said, like we primarily contract with schools, but we also offer private mentoring as well. So if there are folks in this area who would like us to come in and work with a young men or boy that they know, we have that. If there are folks who are connected to schools in this area, you know, we have some geographic reach that we can go out to and continue to expand. Um, but we're also happy to, you know, talk to folks and act as coaches or advisors um, for folks anywhere in the world. Um, we'll hop on and help as folks are, you know, meeting the challenges of being role models and educators for the young men in their lives. Um, yeah, there's there's so much possibility in terms of finding other organizations that do similar work to what we do. I, I hope there are more out there. I haven't found a ton. Um, there are some programs and some get more attention than others. And I think there's good stuff, but as I think you probably know, like there is a lot more work with adult men than with youth. And a lot of that is, you know, just because of many various factors, but man, it's so much easier to, you know, address some of these issues with folks who are young and haven't had the you know, harmful negative messages pounded in them quite as much as in as it is to repair, you know, a couple decades of the challenges that men have gone through. And so I would love for more folks to be working with young men. And how do people find you? What's your site and all of that? Yeah. So for our organization, we're the Inspiring Men Project, which is improject.co. And my personal site for coaching and work with me directly is scottacultonbaugh.com. So depending on what you're looking for, you can go to either of those sites and, and find us. I will drop those in the show notes as well so that you know how to spell Kaltenbaugh, everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah so I, I also have looked into this a little bit and have not found very many programs, but I did want to shout out one around porn literacy. Mm. So the average age right now of porn um, 
viewing for boys is 11, for girls is 13. So it's younger than you think that it is. And there is a program on the East Coast. I believe it started in Boston, but it has scaled a bit. Um, And I'm blanking on the name of that, but I'll also drop that in the show notes. That is not what you do, but it is something for you. It has very good reviews, right? Everyone that's participated in it is like, wow, I didn't know this and this feels important and et cetera. Um, Yeah. So as we sort of start to wrap up, I'm curious if you can speak very briefly to, we have a lot of clients and I imagine there are a lot of men listening who are fathers of boys and young men. And what would you sort of recommend to them as far as bringing up a conversation around this, you know, is it, is it, is it worth doing that? Is it too, too on the nose, too direct? You know, what would you recommend? Obviously probably get your boy into a program like this, right? Sacred Sons is another one that I'll drop into the, um, into the chat and they do, they do some online stuff as well for, if you're not in a specific area, but what else would you sort of recommend to fathers? Honestly, one you of the are best. A new father, actually, yeah, I have a new father. I have a soon-to-be fourteen-month-old daughter, and uh, yeah, they, I couldn't be happier. And it's such such joy and such a pleasure. Um, and yeah, being the father to a a young girl is going to be amazing, and all of the challenges that come with that. So I'm excited for that future. Um, in terms of being a father, like one of the best things. At, I mean, this was my experience. Um, my mom was very influential in getting this started, but my dad and I went to breakfast together every Saturday morning from probably the time that I was, oh, I might've been as young as when I was like eight until I was 18. And in all those years, I could probably count on two hands, the number of Saturdays that we missed and just getting to go and have breakfast together. The two of us, like sometimes, most of the time, it wasn't deep conversations, right? Most of the time, it wasn't serious. We'd just chat about our week, things going on. There were times when, you know, we'd be having that father-son, you know, challenge, and we didn't talk a lot. Maybe we were a little grumpy with each other, and that's okay, too. But by creating that space, by creating that framework, like, it meant that when we needed to have the deep conversations, we could, right? When we needed to, the, like the trust was built a lot through that and through having that there. And so I would say, you know, fathers like create something like that. It doesn't have to be breakfast. Maybe it's regularly getting out to do whatever activity you both enjoy right? Whether it's shoulder to shoulder, face to face again, like, you know, whatever works for you, find that. And then if you're still feeling like you want more support for your son, start talking about that. And like, Hey, you know, like, I'd like us to have a better relationship. I'd like us to like, like, I'd like to continue to be a better father to you, but I'd also like you to see some other views of masculinity. I'd like you to see other, how other good men do this, right? What about something like a mentor, right? What about, you know, another man that you can connect with? And that can be a great way to start that connection rolling. And, you know, one of the things we talk about is like, we are not therapists, right? The boys in the school are not coming to us to be punished, right? We are a different thing, right? 
And and then you have organizations like Boys and like uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, which is a great organization. Their challenge is that because they rely on volunteers, they never have enough mentors for the people who want to go work with them. And so if you can go to them, great. If not, it might just be like a private connection that you set up. If there's no organization like ours around, who's a good man in your life who you can say, you know what? I think my son would benefit by spending more time with this person and set up regular meetings for them and see how it goes. Yeah. I think the more that young men are exposed to just good men, that's only going to have a positive benefit in their lives. That's a great point. I love the part about rituals and just exposure, just more time with men who are modeling healthy masculinity. And what I would add to that is do your own work. Yes. Work. The best way that you can contribute as a father is to do your own work because you are the transmission. Mm. And that is true whether your kids are young or adult children. You know, we have multiple men in our program who have 18, 20 something, 30 something young men as sons, and they have their relationships have improved because of the work that they have done. Their work has transmitted to their kids and has made it safer and more open and more rich, more of a rich, close connection. And that has definitely had an, a ripple effect out as well. So I would add that's, that is, that's up there too. So important. So important. And through all of this work, I have learned so much about myself, right? By doing, by trying to prep to be better for these young men, Man, I have gone deep into myself and found all of those spaces. And of course, I'm still a work in progress. But oh, man, the growth that I've done in the last 10 years as I've done more and more of this work, it's its incredible. So you will be on a great journey yourself as you do this stuff for your sons and the young men in your lives. Yeah. And thank you for what you do and who you are in the world. I, I think we need so many more programs like this, so much more. I would love for it to be a regular part of of our schooling, right? And an ongoing regular part. So I would love to see relationship ed, not just romantic relationship, but just relationship ed normalized the way that sex ed has been normalized. Just this is part of what we teach our young people, right? We we teach them about relating and and yeah, feel feel passionate about that. So if anyone, by the way, that's listening has other programs or other interesting concepts that you think that we should know about or share, you can always get me at dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. I will drop all the info that I mentioned in the show notes. It will be a long, long show notes this time. And um, and if you're ever interested in coaching work with me and Jason, you can go to evolutionary.men slash apply to learn more about that. We will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.